Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before we begin with today's show, I got to tell you, I am super excited about our next event, our next Wealth Formula Meetup. And I'll tell you why. Because in addition to the usual finance talks that we have, and we're going to have some of old and some new, we've got Tom Wheelwright, uh, Doug Laudmel, but we've also got the guy who formerly ran a sovereign wealth fund. And we also have an MIT trained scientist who's an expert on basically cheap energy for Bitcoin mining. And that is something that I think is going to be really cool. However, in the afternoon, usually we go for these um, bus rides. And of course, that is very useful, uh, particularly if you want to see some of the properties that you're invested in. However, I also know that there are people who've been on many bus rides and would like to potentially do something else. So what we have done is actually put an afternoon program together in an afternoon program that actually involves not personal finance, but something that really all of us are interested in, which is longevity and lifespan, basically how to live longer and you know better during that time that you actually live now the reality is a lot of people don't know that there are things today that can make you live longer and you know healthier for a longer period of time um you know but there's a ton of technology coming out there beyond just the cardiovascular stuff and the reality is that right now i believe that the first person to live to 150 years has already been born. Now, that may not be us middle-aged folks, but I do believe that there's an opportunity for us to live up to 100 and feel like we're 50. The science is compelling, and that's what we're going to talk about in the afternoon. We have some really good speakers that are within our network, some physicians, and it is going to be, it's going to blow your mind, especially if you've not heard much about this stuff. Sign up now, wealthformulaevents.com. We always cap these events at 100 people. It's basically less than a month away now. October 7th and 8th in Dallas-Fort Worth. Again, wealthformulaevents with an S.com. Now, as far as today's show, what we're going to talk about is free trade in the world trade organization, right? And when I was growing up, 
in terms of political affiliation in parties, you know, the Republican Party stood for small government and free trade. The Democrats were apparently on the other side of the table. And maybe, maybe it's an incorrect generalization, but, you know, as a child of the 80s and a Reagan Republican, one thing's for sure, neither party supports real free trade anymore. They just don't. Why? Well, I think it stems from an overriding trend towards nationalism. However you feel about the nationalism, you know, I I don't tend to think of it as a very good thing. The problem is this interference with free trade because free trade is very beneficial for economies. And over the past decades, no other country has benefited more from free trade than the United States. Uh, there are many benefits to free trade. Obviously, you have a greater variety of goods to choose from. Free trade allows for maximization of resources and makes them more efficient to allocate. Also, promotes efficiency in production, improves employment. Now, some people are like, oh, no, but, you know, it doesn't improve employment because it takes jobs away from the Midwest. Now, that if you look at the, the numbers, the net effect is it improves employment. And finally, it allows us to keep the cost of stuff we consume way lower than it would be if we didn't have free trade. Just imagine where we'd be if we didn't have China, right? I mean, we'd be paying a lot of money for clothes and, you know, pretty much everything else that we have. The body that regulates global trade is the World Trade Organization. And as you can imagine, Uh, These nationalistic forces that I'm talking about have rendered it less effective than it was. Uh, Now, to discuss the benefits of free trade and the health of of global trade today, I have the opportunity uh, to speak with one of the founders of the World Trade Organization, Congressman James Bacchus. And we're going to have that conversation uh, right after we come back from these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show again. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Professor James Bacchus. Professor Bacchus is the Distinguished University Professor of Global Affairs and Director of the Center of Global Economic and Environmental Opportunity at the University of Central Florida. He was also a congressman uh, as well in Florida from 1991 until 1995. 
And during that time, he was a founding judge and twice chairman, uh, the chief judge, one of the of the highest court of the World Trade Organization, the appellate body of the World Trade Organization. Professor Bacchus, welcome to the show. Uh, well, it's great to be here, uh, Buck. I'm a big fan of yours, and uh, it's an honor to be asked to be on your show. Well, that's very kind of you. You know, we uh, we have a bunch of very smart listeners, but a lot of us don't know very much about, you know, the global economy and trade and that sort of thing. So maybe we can start with this um, this time when you were in the Congress and you and your colleagues put together the, the World Trade Organization. I guess it would be a good idea for us to just talk about sort of what the circumstances were during that time, you know, how things worked before that that ultimately led to the need uh, for this organization and, and, and what exactly its goals were. I was a trade negotiator for the United States before I became a member of Congress. Uh, I was the first former trade negotiator uh, for this country later to serve in the Congress, uh, unless we count John Quincy Adams, uh, who had uh, far more uh, achievements overall than I have had great admirer of President Adams. Um, therefore, uh, even as a junior member of the Congress, I was much involved on trade issues in the early 1990s. I was uh, a strong opponent of uh, uh, the NAFTA. Uh, I was uh, much involved in the effort to get China permanent normal trade uh, relations status, what we call in uh, uh, the trade world most favored nation status. And I was one of the six original co-sponsors in the House of the implementing legislation for the Uruguay Round of Trade Agreements that uh, did many things, but among them uh, concluded uh, all the uh, various agreements that together comprise uh, the WTO Treaty and also established the World Trade Organization as an international institution. Uh, but this was not uh, something we created from nothing. In the aftermath of uh, the Second World War, um, leading countries came together and uh, created the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, uh, which had um, created a rule-based trading system uh, that had uh, lasted for nearly half a century uh, before it was transformed into the WTO. What we did with the WTO is um, vastly broaden the scope of what had been the GATT. And also, um, we uh, made the rules in the agreement uh, binding. Our challenge in uh, 1994 in um, bringing the United States into the WTO uh, was that uh, we wanted to uh, discern ways to continue to um, free trade worldwide while also making uh, the rules of trade binding on everyone, uh, not only the United States of America. The uh, theory is that in lowering barriers to trade worldwide, we can vastly increase uh, the amount of trade worldwide and thus increase the 
economic gains from trade for each individual country. And then each country can, in its own domestic uh, deliberations, uh, decide how best uh, to uh, distribute those gains domestically through tax policy, through other uh, forms of domestic policy. And that's exactly what we uh, succeeded in doing with the WTO more than a quarter of a century later. Uh, the Bertelsmann Foundation in Germany has recently concluded uh, a study uh, of uh, the extent to which um, all the 164 countries that are members of the WTO now have benefited from being a part of this multilateral trading system. They found that every single one of those countries benefited economically, and they found that the country that benefited the most was the United States of America. So this has been uh, a very worthwhile endeavor uh, from the point of view of Americans, but also uh, from the point of view of everyone else. What about when you talk about everyone in the World Trade Organization, you're including uh, obviously China and Russia and you know, in a way, I wonder, because you hear about China breaking rules all the time, it almost seems like a little bit of, uh, a little unfair, right? Like we have a set of guidelines that we're going to run by, but, you know, they cheat and no one's, you know, they don't get kicked out for it. So in that regard, do you see that as an ongoing project? I mean, what? how do you view those kinds of situations? China came into the WTO in 2001, uh, a few years after it was uh, established. And in becoming uh, a member of the WTO, China entered into what is called an accession agreement. Uh, and in that agreement, it not only agreed to comply with all the obligations uh, that bound everyone else to the WTO treaty, but also a lot of additional uh, obligations that uh, applied only to China. For the most part, China has uh, kept its obligations. And also when China has been uh, brought before the bar of justice in WTO dispute settlement, where uh, in the first decade of the WTO, as you mentioned, I was the chief judge, uh, China has largely complied with rulings that went against China. Uh, yet it's uh, true that uh, in uh, many respects, uh, China, which is a huge country of uh, more than a billion people, uh, does not always comply with its WTO obligations. Of course, it should. And in my view, uh, the United States and other countries should join together more often uh, to uh, bring uh, complaints, lawsuits against China and the WTO. Um, because China has had a good record of complying uh, with WTO rulings when uh, uh, they are adverse to China. Uh, yet the size of China and uh, the recent shift of China away from more open uh, markets and a more open economy and society and back toward an inwardness uh, creates a continuing problem uh, for the other members of the WTO in dealing with China within the trading system. Uh, but I'd like to emphasize that it's not only China that does not always comply with all of its WTO obligations. Uh, many other countries do not always comply with them either. Uh, 
the United States has not complied with many of its WTO obligations uh, in the past half dozen years since uh, first Donald Trump was elected and now under the uh, Biden administration. Uh, the uh, unilateral tariffs that were imposed by uh, President Trump and his administration against China are all uh, flagrantly illegal under the WTO treaty. Uh, some of the other unilateral measures that were taken by the Trump administration uh, against even some of our allies uh, uh, were equally unlegal. Uh, right now, there are more than half a dozen cases pending against the United States relating to these Trump uh, tariffs and uh, unilateral measures of other kinds uh, imposed by President Trump uh, that the United States is likely to lose. Uh, this isn't mentioned very often in the media, but those cases are there and they're moving toward a conclusion. Uh, in my view, every country that's a member of the WTO, every country that's signed the WTO treaty should always fulfill all of its obligations. I'm committed to the international uh, rule of law, and that's precisely what the international rule of law requires. You know, part of what's going to make this work, obviously, is the interest in world trade in general. And, you know, you look around the world, starting with the United States, and you, you talk about um, uh, sort of the shifting politics in President Trump's uh, foreign policy. Uh, there's an increasing amount of nationalism, not only here, but in other countries that is creating more of uh, maybe an insular approach. And so I'm curious on if you feel that that the World Trade Organization in some regards is is in trouble or if it's it's not if is effective now because of that sort of overall uh, switch in um, uh, global nationalism. And nationalism is dangerous. It leads to war, it leads to death, it leads to destruction. Uh, the history of the past two centuries proves that. I um, distinguish nationalism from patriotism. Patriotism is love of country. Uh, nationalism is the belief that uh, uh, your country is the only country and that other countries should step aside. Uh, and yes, therefore, uh, economic nationalism is a threat to the WTO, but it's incumbent on all members of the WTO to fight back against economic nationalism. In pursuit of economic nationalism, members of the WTO will take measures uh, that discriminate in favor of domestic producers and suppliers, and uh, these measures are many times uh, inconsistent with their obligations under the WTO treaty. When that happens, other countries should uh, take them to WTO dispute settlement, and they should pay the price in dispute settlement. Uh, if a country uh, uh, loses a case in dispute settlement, it has a choice. It can comply with the ruling by uh, eliminating or uh, fixing whatever measure, law, regulation, practice has been challenged, or it can suffer economic sanctions, and those sanctions can be to the tune of billions of dollars annually in lost trade. Uh, uh, the reason why the WTO is so controversial is because the WTO is the only international institution that has uh, the uh, leverage and therefore the power to uh, impose its rules. 
to make certain that uh, the rule of law is upheld. Uh, and um, I believe that uh, the WTO can be an effective tool for fighting back against economic nationalism. Let me add, too, that economic nationalism is wholly misguided in terms of uh, economics. Uh, economic nationalism does not help uh, the people of uh, whatever country is practicing it. It hurts them. It, it diminishes uh, their choices. It uh, increases the prices that people have to pay. It uh, reduces the competitiveness of their industries. Uh, protectionism is another name for economic nationalism. Protectionism does not work. And uh, I should point out that when you were in Congress, you were a Democrat. And so, you know, traditionally the... Actually, Buck, I'm still a Democrat. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I didn't want to presume, but people but, are changing all the time. I, mean, I, I agree with everything my uh, fellow Democrats in Washington are doing. <laughs> right. Well, I will say, uh, and yeah, that's a, that's probably a good thing to say. Uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me is, uh, you know, they're back at, when you were in Congress, well, actually, even before you were in Congress, I should say, because Bill Clinton changed things a little bit. But there was the party of, you know, free trade and open global trade, and that was a Republican party. And the Democratic Party was not as, um, you know, that was not a major part of their platform. Uh, the Clinton administration comes in and they, you know, they really become sort of a free trade you know, administration, which was, I think, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but this is pretty unusual uh, a shift for a Democrat. Um, well, let me let me correct yeah. you just a bit on sure. the history. Uh, you're certainly not wrong about President Clinton or Vice mm -hmm. President Gore. Their their views on trade are very similar to mine, and uh, I can rightly be described as Clinton Gore Democrat. And uh, all three of us are in favor of freer trade. Uh, but it's not the case that uh, uh, before President Clinton went into office, Democrats were largely against freer trade. Uh, that happened later, and I and I uh, and I think it's certainly true now. But uh, looking back uh, into uh, the twentieth um, century, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson was in favor of uh, freer trade. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a strong advocate of freer trade. His Secretary of State, Cordell Hall, uh, helped create the trading system. Harry Truman supported it. Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, did as well. There was something called the Kennedy Round. President Carter uh, actively and strongly supported the Tokyo Round. And uh, then, as you have already mentioned, uh, uh, Bill Clinton and others uh, came along, including me, who strongly supported the Uruguay Round. Uh, the Democrats began to turn against trade in the 1990s while I was there, uh, but only strongly turned against trade after I left. Uh, as for the Republicans, historically up until uh, a few years ago, uh, they were, to their credit, very much in favor of uh, uh, free trade and uh, uh, international responsibility in trade and multilateralism in trade. Uh, but President Trump changed all that. 
Well, there are still Republicans who support free trade, but for the most part, they're not in the Congress and uh, uh, they're not running for uh, office. My point in bringing this up a little bit is that there is no real, uh, you know, there's not neither major party has a significant interest in, uh, uh, you know, free markets and global trade right now. And how does that, you know, how does that bode for an organization like the World Trade Organization? Well, the United States is the key to the success of the WTO. Uh, Trump's uh, continued threats to pull out of the WTO were not helpful uh, to the trading system, nor were his actions in uh, flouting uh, WTO rules, simply ignoring them and going ahead uh, with his bluster and posing unilateral illegal measures. Uh, and right now, I have to say uh, uh, that, uh, in my view, the Biden administration is engaging largely in a polite form of protectionism. And they are, for the most part, continuing with President Trump's protectionist policies. They're just not insulting people and yelling about it uh, uh, and uh, yeah. making a fuss. Uh, they're very polite about it, but the policy is pretty much yeah. the same. Again, yeah, again, that's that's sort of the, you know, that's the point I was making is that, you know, neither party seems to have a significant interest in. Uh, I, I think that's true, and indeed it's an understatement. And this puzzles me uh, to some extent because if you look at any of the polls that have been taken nationally by uh, established polling organizations, they all find that overwhelmingly the American people are in favor of lowering barriers to trade and being engaged uh, internationally and, and business and commerce. And, and uh, you find that uh, um, much of the economic gains that we've seen uh, over the past generation can be attributed to uh, lowering barriers to trade and uh, promoting investment and uh, uh, opening our economy in other ways. The problem is that uh, uh, we, we should have been doing two things uh, during all that time, and we were only doing one. The one we were doing is lowering barriers to trade, opening up the economy. The one we were not doing was making certain that uh, uh, many of the American people uh, had the skills and the opportunities they needed to be able to succeed in a more open economy. And, and those are are the people who've been displaced. Uh, they're largely in uh, uh, uncompetitive industries that continue to exist only because of trade protectionism. Uh, and uh, they're largely uh, workers who, who don't have higher levels of formal education. And uh, they have needed help in getting through uh, this transition toward a more open more globalized economy, and they haven't gotten it. And, of course, what's happening now is that uh, the people who forgot to help them, both Democrats and Republicans alike, are pointing at the wrong target. Uh, they're blaming uh, these consequences on trade when they should be blaming themselves for not providing the opportunities and the uh, broader safety net and the uh, economic uh, help in, in making uh, a job transition that is necessary. Uh, where we have failed in the United States is making certain that uh, the bountiful economic gains from trade 
uh, are shared widely among the American people. Um, Senator, tell us uh, about the book you wrote and why you wrote it. Well, my latest book is called uh, Trade Links, New Rules for a New World. Uh, I am committed uh, not only to uh, trade, but more broadly to uh, sustainable development. Uh, I, I, I believe and have been working for decades uh, for uh, the uh, environmental, economic, and social goals of sustainable development. And um, I'm much engaged in that still now. The trading system, I believe, uh, and I was there uh, and helped uh, uh, make this happen, uh, was intended at the outset as the very first paragraph in the preamble to the WTO treaty says, uh, to pursue trade and other economic endeavor uh, consistently with the objectives of sustainable development. And here I'm quoting the treaty. Uh, and that's exactly what this book is about. It's about how we could uh, change uh, the WTO rules uh, the provisions in the far-reaching WTO treaty uh, to make certain uh, not only that uh, trade does not stand in the way of a sustainable development, but that trade is an affirmative agent for sustainable development. In the book, I explain why we need to do that, and I also explain uh, how we can do it. I make many specific proposals. And I'm pleased to say that uh, although when I began uh, talking about this after I ceased being a judge of the WTO in 2004, there were no WTO members who were at all interested in what I had to say. Today, 74 WTO members, nearly half of the membership, uh, but accounting for about 85% of all global trade are actively engaged in what they call structured discussions on uh, the relationship between trade and environmental sustainability. Uh, and indeed, I've been speaking with these members and those staffers who are working with them uh, frequently in recent weeks, and I'll be meeting with them in Geneva later this month when I speak at the WTO about trade links, my book. And um, this is a serious amount of progress. Uh, structured discussions in WTO speak uh, are usually a prelude to uh, genuine negotiations that may happen within the next year or so. And they're looking on the environmental front at a number of issues that I talk about in trade links that I think need to be addressed. The need to uh, spread uh, technology transfer of new green technologies by eliminating barriers to that trade. Uh, the need to uh, address subsidies that cause environmental harms. The need to begin uh, building toward a much more circular economy, such as through uh, uh, disciplining a lot of the environmentally harmful uh, uh, consequences of plastics trade, and uh, also addressing the nexus between trade and climate change, uh, which means uh, trying to figure out how the WTO uh, rules framework can support climate 
actions when they are genuine climate actions and not stand in the way of the book uh, is again trade links uh, senator james bacchus the book is available everywhere right including uh amazon which is where most of us seem to get our books these days is there an audible book too I'm not sure if there is or not. There may be one uh, already from uh, the publisher, Cambridge University Press. Got it. Uh, it's certainly available on Amazon, but it's also available on the website of Cambridge University Press, the publisher. Wonderful. Senator, thank you so much for joining us on Well Formula Podcast. I've enjoyed this chat with you, and uh, I'm happy to come back anytime. But thanks so much. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Congressman Bacchus is a very smart guy. And, you know, what I like about him is he's kind of a, you know, old school politician. And, you know, kind of, it's not just about party. It's about what's right for the country. And uh, I appreciate his work. Now, before I go, I want to remind you one more time, because spots are limited for our next Wealth Formula event, Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, It's October 7th and 8th. And go to wealthformulaevents.com. Now, remember, this is going to be not only a financial uh, learning experience, but an opportunity to learn cutting-edge stuff when it comes to longevity uh, and health span. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.